I have been ordained for just over 21 years. And it was at the end of that first year of ministry for me when I was serving my first congregation that Columbine happened. And I thought, well, this is going to change things. And now, again, I get up here on a Sunday morning, I'm not complaining, I'm doing my job after having rewritten part of my message the night before because of another atrocity. Please don't call it a tragedy. Tragedies don't have human actors and agency behind it. Atrocities do. And so today, what I'm going to ask is actually, we'll pray later, but I'm going to ask if you would kind of join your heart with me right now in prayer. As I found myself doing this again, and all of us here again. So however you need to allow yourself to come to that place within yourself of deep and loving awareness, and I offer these brief words. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, you who are that great compassion, attested to by all the world's traditions. Amen. So my message today is going to unfold in what's called photo voice, which is a series of images. This is me and my friend, Michael Bush, Reverend Michael Bush, minister of the UCC church right over here in Valley Forge. The only way that actually I got to be with Michael Bush was actually because of people at Wellsprings who knew us in common and said, oh my God, you guys got to meet. And we were actually Facebook friends, he and me, for a good year or so before we actually did meet in person. UCC, for those of you who might not know, is uh, the United Church of Christ, called by some more traditional or conservative Christians, Unitarians considering Christ, and that might give you a sense of some of the commonalities between Michael and myself. They don't mean that in a kind way. But... Michael and I met in the fall of 2016, and everyone who said we should get together, we should meet one another, was absolutely right. It was a deep, bonded friendship almost from the very first moment. Now, we actually don't have, in many ways, the kind of obvious things in common. We don't really like the same music, and I'm much more of a sports fan than he is. I actually took him to his first Phillies game here in Philadelphia, even though he'd been here for about six or seven years by that point. But Michael has many of the qualities that I esteem in a person. Honesty, deep loving character, wonderful wit. And I bring up Michael today because, as some of you who I am Facebook friends with might know this, or maybe you're Facebook friends with Michael, Michael is moving on to another ministry. He is moving very, very far away from here to Tucson, Arizona, not around the corner. It won't be easy for us to say, hey, let's go get in a boat and go out onto the Schuylkill with each other. Let's go grab dinner. Why don't you come over? I'll cook for you. That's not going to happen anymore in a matter of a couple weeks. And what I've recognized within myself, I fully support Michael's choice. It's the right choice for him professional. I am excited for him. 
And what I recognize within myself is nothing more and nothing less than grief. The sadness of having a friend move away. And a friend who I made as a midlife guy, (laughs) which doesn't happen very much in many guys' lives. I mean, there's like whole reams of literature and research now about the fact that more and more men, especially men like me, cisgender men, heterosexual men, are becoming lonelier and lonelier and more isolated and that there are tremendous costs to this. I actually saw this a number of years ago when I put together this little book. Some of you might remember, we used to carry it here at Wellsprings. I've, I've actually put together other books that have sold much better than this one. This one kind of died on the shelves. And actually that might say something about the state of masculinity in America. All kinds of different male and masculine voices shared in this. And one of the things I talked about was waking up, kind of waking up in my early 30s at the end of my first training wheels marriage and recognizing that, oh my God, I had lost all my friendships. It's one of the things that can happen to guys, especially aging into the young and through the young adult years, is that the ties that bind can snap because of change or they just grow slack and no longer hold us. I remember particularly seeing this really represented where I lived at the time when I was putting together my essay for this book that I edited was Florida. And if you live in southeastern Florida and you live in a high-rise, chances are you are going to live with a bunch of retirees as part of the people living there. And I did. And one of the things I noticed is that the women every day would gather around the pool and play canasta or bridge or one of those great old-timey games that I never learned how to play, although I kind of wish that I did. And they would talk about their grandkids or they'd talk about how hot it was or they'd talk about their aches and pains that are associated with growing older. And what I saw just as regularly were older men by themselves, not in groups. There are real costs of male loneliness. Again, that's what the research shows us. Violence against self and other addictions, mental health disorders. There are real terrible costs. I don't know how exactly all of us got this message, those of us who are socialized as men, that getting close to people is a bad or unsafe thing, something we want to avoid doing. But many of us get that message, especially guys like me. I remember it was, I think, the third day that I was at boarding school, right up here, right up Route 100, the Hill School, back in the dark old days of single-sex education. I like to joke that when they decided to go co-ed, they did not just join the 21st century, that they actually joined the 20th century. (laughs) I remember the third day entering the dining hall. And when I said, excuse me, to a couple of my fellow 15-year-old kids 
boys who are standing in my way. Excuse me. One of them turned around immediately to me and said, what do you want, faggot? Now, I, who was not gay, couldn't really take personal offense at this, although I took offense at someone who would respond to such a simple request with such awful violence and marginalization. But these messages, those of us who are men, who are socialized as men, get those messages over and over and over again in this society. And many of us end up taking it out on ourselves or taking it out on other people. We deny vulnerability. We stifle our emotional lives. And that comes at terrible, terrible costs. I thought of that again when I saw this person recently Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister of England. Uh, I'm actually not going to talk about his politics today, although I really disagree with his politics. I actually want to talk about the place that produced him. Boris Johnson went away to boarding school, stiff upper lip British boarding school at age seven. (laughs) Sent away. And there's a psychotherapist who wrote an article who has worked with men who emerge from that kind of experience. Upper class, British men who were boys who were sent away. And he doesn't just work with them in terms of the psychotherapy, although he does that. He actually studies what happens to boys like this and the men they become and a kind of the politics that they create, especially if they are leaders. It is one that is deeply suspicious of intimacy, one that finds humor at the expense of people who are considered to be lesser There are terrible, terrible costs to what we might call and now do call toxic masculinity. That's what today's movie is about. The art of self-defense. It is a pretty brutal, satirical indie comedy. It is about this character. Casey Davies played by the actor Jesse Eisenberg, and I cannot tell you there could not be a more perfect actor to play him. When we first meet him, he is scared of his own shadow. He is the meek that is beyond meek. He is the kind of guy that stands around other guys looking for an opportunity to maybe find his way to get into the conversation. Like if you remember Animal House and talk about Animal House, a movie that has not aged well if you have seen it recently, not aged well at all. It is so troubling But remember Flounder? You guys playing cards? (laughs) When it's obviously we're playing cards. That's Casey Davies. When we first meet him, we see how scared he is of life. And then something terrible happens to Casey Davies. He is beaten to the point of unconsciousness and put in the ICU by a motorcycle gang. And his meekness becomes full on trauma. It is a deeply satirical comedy and a troubling one, as satire often is and is supposed to be. See, because Casey Davies, in his desire not to heal, but to no longer feel his vulnerability, which is understandable, especially if we've been traumatized, finds himself 
in a karate dojo, which at first gives him confidence and gives him a sense of self. And then, and this is the pretty deeply satirical part, finds himself falling under the sway of the cult-like leader, the sensei, the leader of this dojo, who say things deadpan when he takes and enter Casey Davies' name into the computer when he registers him. Casey Davies, that's a very feminine name. And just let it sit there while Casey squirms. Casey, who has a dog that he loves, that is really the only creature he is close to, when he starts to fall under this way of toxic masculinity and his dog greets him at the door looking for hugs and for love and for companionship, he says, I am no longer going to pet you anymore. And this is for your own good. It is a satire of the worst aspects of things we see over and over again in this society. Boys don't cry. Boys don't show weakness. When, of course, boys do, right? I know I did. Here's a good thing. At least in the 49 years that I have been alive, I have never seen more healthy options offered to us as human beings of the different ways to be male now than ever before. And yet, the old, hateful, hurting traditions of toxic masculinity die very hard. They will not go down without a fight. Toxic masculinity is absolutely connected to the poisons we are seeing in our culture right now of homophobia and racism and misogyny. Any dominance-based ideology is connected back to this kind of toxic masculinity. When I was at boarding school, I eventually fall in, fell in and found my group First year was the loneliest year of my life. I wanted to run away from boarding school every single day. I don't know how I stuck it out. But eventually I found my crew. I found my tribe. And we were kind of the artsy kids. We were the kids who were always looking to get into Philadelphia or go to New York to go to the punk rock shows of any variety we could find. And so this is to say I was not a prog rock fan at all. And yet the Rush song, I think it was called Subdivisions, Be Cruel or Be Cast Out. That was something that marked my experience of being a teenage male. These messages we can still find all throughout our culture, all throughout our society. Maybe you saw this on Facebook or social media. Dad shaming sticker tells men they're being feminized by using changing tables. And if you cannot read this, this is a changing table in a public restroom that someone has decided to stick a sticker on that says, warning, this is another example of the feminization of the American male. I've seen these. <laughs> this is a young man named Dante in a restroom that doesn't have a changing station trying to say, this is what I got to go through when I'm trying to be a responsible father to the child I love. These messages are all over the place. And we're still finding out what happened last night in Dayton. And we're still coming to know what happened in El Paso. 
but we're starting to get a sense of what that was about. I'm not recommending you read it, but if you want to read the ideology of dominance, of exploitation, of fear, of hatred that stands right at the center of toxic masculinity, read the manifesto that it appears the El Paso shooter put out. And he didn't get that from nowhere. Those are talking points that we can find over and over again in social media and on certain major news stations over and over and over again. What happened yesterday is not a tragedy. It's the result of a certain ideology that is ascendant in our culture right now. And we might say, well, you know, not here, it's not us, but we live in this world. And I know so many of you are already finding ways to say, no, this does not represent what is healthy. And it's so terribly important for us to find our collective voice, to be the people that Frank pointed to who are there lifting up the car, offering a different and better way. We've been involved in this conversation about pushing back against toxic masculinity for quite a while here at Wellsprings. Some of you may have seen this documentary. It's actually one of the most popular single-time offerings we've ever opened space for here at Wellsprings. It's from a documentary called The Mask You Live In. Break that apart. It's about masculinity and about how many of the traditional or toxic forms of masculinity are masks, are misrepresentations of who young men and boys actually are. This is a man named Joe Ehrman, who was, by all accounts, seemingly you would look at him, the very representation of American masculinity, a football player, the most American sport there is. He like wasn't a wide receiver or running back or a quarterback. He was a lineman. <laughs> he was right there in the middle of it. He grew up in a household in which his father was regularly abusive to him emotionally and physically. And he said the three worst words that you can tell a young boy, be a man. Don't have feelings. Don't show your weakness. That truly there are two emotions that young men are allowed to show. Rage and lust. And everything else tamp down. That's what he meant is encoded in to be a man. Pain, uncertainty. I would say the very things that make us human. The very things that call me, myself, into within the wider scope of Unitarian Universalism, particularly the Buddhist path, which starts with this one noble truth. Life is suffering, except suffering is a really bad translation, really inaccurate translation of that old, ancient Pali word, dukkha, which means life is uh, unsatisfactory. <laughs> life changes and, and things happen that are unpleasant. And, you know, there are three other noble truths that talk about a path beyond that first path, beyond that first truth, but it begins there. And I think those of us who don't make our peace with the fact that life doesn't always turn out as we would wish and that can make us feel vulnerable and in pain, this is what toxic masculinity is spun out of. 
and all ideologies of domination. This refusal to understand that, in fact, grasping that life can be difficult for me, which means it's also probably difficult for you in different ways, no doubt, but it means that there is a sense of all of us being in this together. And from that place, we can grow hearts wide with compassion. There are so many people who want to do this work. So many people who are doing this work. And sometimes with unintended consequences. This is Alana Boltwood. And if you listen to Reply All, awesome podcast. I just got into it. It's been around for about five years. It's kind of a study of the internet, but not so much about the technology side. It's about who we're becoming in a culture in which the internet and all the different ways we're connected with each other grows us, changes us, and sometimes hurts us. Alana Boltwood, and for years she would only use her first name, Alana. I'm going to tell you why. She couldn't even use her last name. She was a mathematics uh, student in Ottawa, in Canada. She describes herself as someone who was very bright, but didn't really have much social skills, hadn't connected with other people. One night, she found herself in her office in the library late at night working on a math problem, and a man showed up at her door, the door of her office, and just blurted out, I'm 27 years old, and I've never been on a date. And she said, okay, this is before I knew about stalking and before I knew about creepiness. But I could get also the sense that he was kind of being genuine and he was sad. And so we just started talking. And then Alana came to awareness herself that she was 24 years old and she had never, ever been on a date. (laughs) And she also recognized something else about herself, that she would come to identify as queer. She wanted to start dating other women. And so at 24 years of age, in the mid-1990s, she had her first ever date with a woman. And she had no idea how to do it. And she recognized that like this guy who showed up at her door in her office in the library, there are so many other people out there who are lonely, who are looking for connection, who, if you've ever heard this word, This is the beginning of it, who are involuntarily celibate. This is the mid-90s. The internet was just starting. She began a very basic website and support group for people who were involuntarily celibate to gather together. At first, they called themselves invicels, but that sounded like imbecile, so that was not going to work. And so they eventually got to incel. And at first, it was support. How do you invite someone out on a date in a way that's not creepy? What do you do when you feel rejection? What do you do when you feel loneliness? And Alana, well, as a result of what she had identified within herself, she actually started to become connected with other people. She started to date. And eventually she left this little group in the earliest stages of the Internet, and she thought, I will never hear about incel again. You know the end of the story. You know where this is going. Incel, involuntarily celibate, has become one of the primary expressions of violent 
toxic masculinity in our world. Her group was taken over by young men who would only speak to rage. They believed they were owed sex by women and lust. Alana started to become aware of what had happened totally against her intentions when a young man, an incel in Toronto, rammed his van into people in a public street, killing 10 of them. You might remember in Santa Barbara, a number of years ago, I think it was four years ago now, a young man left his verbal manifesto, the women who hadn't given him sex, and the other men who had put him down, and he was going to extract his revenge. It is of a piece with what we're learning as well about the El Paso shooter and all these other expressions of young men with guns who do not have an emotional vocabulary developed well enough to get beyond rage. Here's the cool thing about Alana. She actually has come back to own this part of her past, even though she now is a pretty happily well-developed person in her 40s with an active social life and has been dating for a long time. That's what this tweet is about. You see, she couldn't share her last name for a very long time because she would be targeted by other incels for violence of all horrific kinds. But she said she started the Love Not Anger Project as a way for lonely people to get connected with each other in truly meaningful and supportive ways. If we do not learn how to handle in kind and decent and compassionate ways our own pain of what it is to be alive, it will come out expressed against ourselves and or the people around us. In a very bizarre way, and I'm not going to give it all away because it wouldn't sound funny again, this is where this movie ends up. <laughs> that actually Casey Davies recognizes the path that he has started to go down of this toxic masculinity, and he turns from it. And he actually helps to restructure the life of his dojo in ways that are not power over, but power with. Life-giving power meaningful ways in which people who want to grow and are experiencing loneliness can support one another. There are better stories and there are better ways. Frank talked about one, and I want to end on one today. This person in back of me with the gray hair, his name is Glenn. I went to Hill School with him. I've really been battering the Hill School today, so I wanted to end with a good story. <laughs> It's not my responsibility to do, you know, marketing work for them. My experience is my experience. But Glenn I went to Hill School with, and he was not part of my circle. He was a jock. He was a hockey player. He was exactly the kind of big barrel-chested guy that intimidated the crap out of me. That's one of the things that Casey Davies says in this movie. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of my own shadow. I'm afraid of other men. I'm afraid of being intimidated. I want to become what intimidates me. That's the seed of masculinity right there. When we think it was done to me, so I have to do it to others. I didn't know Glenn back then. I knew I just wanted to keep my distance from him. This is a picture of Glenn 
with his husband, Matt. Now, like I said, I didn't know Glenn back in the mid-80s at the Hill School. I have no idea if he was struggling or wrestling with who he was and who he wanted to love. I don't know his story. What I do know is that the Matt I met many years later, excuse me, the Glenn I met many years later, was a guy who was fully owning who he was in the world, was integrating who he was, and started an organization called You Can Play. He's still a hockey player. You Can Play. I I communicated with Glenn this week. (laughs) Hadn't talked to him. I'm not even sure we even talked back at Hill School, but it's the first time in a long time I had any interaction with him. Just to let him know how impressed I was from this group that he created about inclusivity in sports called You Can Play was. And these are his words. You Can Play celebrates the diversity in sports. That includes varying levels of what fans see as masculine and feminine. What we work against is an idea that masculine athletes should fit a stereotype of bullies and that being masculine is somehow better or gives an excuse to exclude others. Everyone should be welcome in sports if they can contribute, regardless of how masculine or feminine they may present themselves to be. I don't know who Glenn was. I know that we swam in a pretty toxic stew of misogyny and homophobia. And he found his way to the other side, that he is now living his life. And I think there is a template there for all of us, regardless of our stories. That we can take our experiences of pain and exclusion and loneliness And not turn that pain against ourselves. And especially not against other people. But in fact, use those stories to create the kind of conditions that will be the only thing that will heal our world. A place of belonging and connection and healing and integration. On this Sunday... Yet another Sunday in which we wake up to mass atrocity fueled by hate and gun violence. And there will be others. May we keep our hearts set on a vision of a better world. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me again? Great compassion. That calls us to love and belonging. That has us recognize over and over again that to be human is to feel a certain allotment of pain in this life. May we not turn away from that with hatred. May we not meet our pain or the pain of this world with despair, with anger, but instead recognize that within it is a seed, a seed that we can grow and cultivate and flourish into a better way of being. On a morning like this one, when hope might feel hard to find, may we recognize those and us, all of us, who are doing this hopeful healing work in our world. Amen.